everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Forever Saturday podcast, because it is always college football Saturday in our house. I'm Serena, better known as S. George at R on Twitter. And I'm Matt, also at MattSwartz723. So that was interesting for like a half. <laughs> well, it depends on your view of interesting, I guess. But uh, yeah, it was very weird. It, it's interesting because on one hand, it was very weird in that, I mean, obviously it ended up 52-17, not close at all for most of the latter portion of the game. It was very weird in the sense that there was an eight-minute stretch in the second half in the third quarter when Michigan went from losing to winning by 25 and basically covering the original spread in what was not expected to be a competitive game. And obviously that doesn't happen very much where you just see that kind of point explosion. But also it was very similar, I think, to the Indiana game, and to some extent, the Michigan State game and the Penn State game, where there really wasn't anything the other team that was doing that felt very sustainable, and it kind of felt like Michigan was going to take control at some point. And that's just kind of the way that this team has gone about most of Big Ten play, really. Like, other than the Iowa game, a lot of them have looked pretty similar in that Michigan kind of, you know, lets the other team hang around. They get one or two big plays that, again, aren't they don't really feel very sustainable. Michigan kind of clunks around in the red zone a little bit or has, a you know, a couple of, like, not sharp things that happen on offense. And it's like, okay, this feels like a game we're kind of mostly dominating, but we're not really putting it away. And then in the second half, they put it away decisively. And that just keeps happening every week. And... At some point, that's just sort of what you have to expect of what this team is going to be, and it is, really. And, uh, yeah, I guess this was just further evidence of that. Yeah, I mean, it was weird. I tweeted around halftime, like, for all the people out there who are zen about this, teach me your ways. <laughs> and, like, on the one hand, I do need to learn their ways. And the reason why I, I say that is because... At no point did I actually think Michigan was not going to win this game, but I still couldn't be Zen. Like, that was really what it was, is that I was like, I have actually no reason to be nervous or afraid. Like, this can't continue. And right. yet I still was. It was it's not, it's not rational. It's not a rational way to behave. And I, we've talked about this a lot, but, like, I, I can't turn it off. And so I'm sitting there going, there's no way. I mean, like blocked punt for touchdown mm -hmm. like all fades offense like I was like this is not a thing it cannot possibly be a thing and yet I'm sitting there on the couch fully confident that we're going to pull this off but I'm also like I'm nervous this is miserable I hate this please make it stop <laughs> well and all like, those things can still be true it yeah. can be nerve-wracking and miserable credit. to watch I'm taking credit for this win because I changed my shirt at halftime I think that was the key I I'm a, I'm one of those these people. I'm a juju person. I changed the shirt at halftime. I wasn't happy. I had to change out of the jersey and into a t-shirt, and I'm taking credit for the victory. Harbaugh was very ambiguous about the halftime adjustments. That might have been what he was referring to. That's it was the exactly, shirt. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. He smirked and was like, We're, we'll adjust. And I see, it was me. <laughs> I did the adjusting from afar. But no, I mean, it was a really impressive showing in general. I mean, especially the defense their ability to just take away everything that you have going for you in second halves this season has been really tremendous and this week was no different um you know we won't get through this without talking about michael barrett two picks one pick six will johnson with a pick two 
really tremendous stuff. They're, they just, it's like they just figure it out and bam, they just fly swat the shit out of whatever it is that you're trying to do. And it's really impressive. Well, and again, like we were talking about just a minute ago, it was the Indiana game, the Penn State game. Both of those saw a, an early score or two where it was basically one big play. And otherwise, the defense is pretty well dominated. And then eventually, uh, Michigan State too, actually, I should throw that one in there. Uh, Michigan has kind of said, okay, here's something that we've seen that you can do that might be able to be a little bit of a threat. You know, if you can get this big play and you can do that a couple times, that you'll be able to put a couple points up. And then they take that away and the game is just over from a defensive standpoint. This one was very much the same in the sense that they got the... uh, the like deep ball fade to, to Sean Ryan, who, by the way, is a push-off master. I mean, that guy was just manhandling DJ Turner all game physically, and the officials were really letting him get away with it, which was frustrating. But anyway, they got the one deep ball fade to Sean Ryan on a play where R.J. Moten was supposed to be over the top and, and didn't get there. Um, and I think that was part of an issue with uh, there were a, a number of players out for various reasons, and we'll probably talk a little bit more about that. But th- that's a spot Macari Page has really taken over recently, and Macari Page has played those much better, especially in the Michigan State game. We saw that Moten didn't get over the top on that one, and we got beat for a deep ball. And then a little bit later in the game, they got the uh, the slant that Will Johnson missed the tackle on, and then Quinton Johnson, who I think was in for R.J. Moten after the first drive, he missed the tackle to make that a much bigger play. And, and again, yeah. like Macari Page being in the game probably fixes both of those things. So uh, it was a little bit of kind of flukiness of having a guy out in a game where we don't actually know what happened with Macari Page, but we hadn't seen him be injured. So this might have been a, a game where the coaching staff didn't take it all that seriously, which we kind of knew was going to happen. But it seemed like there were a number of guys sitting out who weren't really injured, but maybe just kind of needed a, a maintenance week <laughs> to, to kind of get back to 100%. And yeah. ultimately that was fine. It was just a little bit annoying and that we saw some things happen where it was like, well, if player X is in there, that probably doesn't happen. And then, you know, what little they were getting kind of got taken away. And, and like we said, that was the end of the game from a, a Rutgers offense versus Michigan defense standpoint because they could not move the ball in any consistent or efficient capacity whatsoever. Yeah, they were good. The defensive line was really good. The defensive line has been very impressive all year in a way that is beyond what I think my reasonable expectations for them was. Oh, 100%. I mean, <laughs> this is maybe the fourth or fifth game in a row where the other team's running game has just gotten completely shut down to the point of being like non-functional. Rutgers ended up with 14 rushing yards, uh, 0.7 yards per carry. It's getting to the point where like, Michigan has a legit argument as the best run defense in the country. And it's every week the opposing run game does nothing basically like one, two yards a carry and no runs longer than, you know, six yards, eight yards, nine yards. Like I think there's just nothing. Longest run in this game was at least longest run by a back. I don't know. I don't know if, um, if Wimsat managed to get away for anything, I don't really remember, but I think their longest run by a back was like eight yards. Their longest run by anyone was eight yards. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's every week. That's, that's the case now. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's incredibly impressive and, I really think that, uh, you know, I, I tweeted about this after the game. I said, we're all going to overreact to what happens against Ohio State, and that's going to cloud our judgment one way or another overall about many things about this team in a way that it probably shouldn't since there are <laughs> 11 other games that happened before that. But we know how it works. That's kind of the, the game at the end, the goal at the end. But Jesse Minter at this point has to be getting serious Broyles consideration. I mean, he has this defense 
well above what any realistic person could have expected based on the players who we lost from last year's defense. Right? I mean, Hutchinson, Ojabo, Dax Hill, Josh Raw, like all key players where, you know, going into the year, we looked at the SP Plus projections and some of the other, uh, you know, just more qualitative expectations. And it was like, okay, this defense should still be pretty good. You know, more of a, a second year in the same system, less transition costs, but it's probably going to take a step back. I think last year's defense finished, uh, was it eighth in SP Plus, somewhere in that area? Yeah, somewhere like that. And we all said, uh, okay, we're probably, uh, you know, top 20, but um, maybe more like 15 or you know, somewhere in that area. Like, it's still still pretty good, but it's not going to be as good as last year. That's just not a realistic expectation. And it's been better by every measurable metric. And Michigan's now up to fourth on defense in SP+. Plus. Like I said, probably just going off of more kind of raw, unadjusted measures, I, I think has the best run defense in the country or maybe the second best if you want to put Georgia up there. I mean, this is an elite defense. And with no real superstars on it, that's pretty hard to pull off. And you got to give Jesse Minner a lot of credit for that. It has shades of 2017 for me in a lot of ways. Yeah. So 2016, right? We trotted out a very, very impressive defense all year, year long, like a suffocating defense in a lot of ways. You got Jordan Lewis at, at the corner who was drafted, whatever, second round, wherever he, third round, wherever he went. You have that whole scary defensive line, you know. Right. And then... 2017 comes around and you lose like I don't know eight of those 11 guys to the NFL after one year or graduation and then Don Brown does what I think is perhaps like the that was probably Harbaugh's best coaching job I think it was like the 2017 like that team had no business winning eight games with the black hole that there was at quarterback (laughs) that's exactly right with a quarterback I mean that team is competing for a playoff spot again despite losing so much from the 2016 team right tremendous coaching job but from that perspective like okay last year we didn't lose that many players by volume but the impact that they had was I think in line with a team that loses like eight seven or eight defensive starters I mean like well yeah they lost their best player if not more than one at each unit on the field right I mean Hutchinson and Ojabo off the defensive line Josh Ross at linebacker like he was really the the centerpiece of the linebacking core and the guy who you know held that group and together the and then Dax Hill as the kind of utility guy who was able to shut down slot guys shut down you know attempts to run bubble screen he just did so much from like a versatility standpoint that like even though DJ Turner was was quite good last year Dax I think you'd have to you know most people would have said at least that he was the best all-around and most important player in that secondary and to lose your main pieces off every unit and somehow get better is just really impressive. Yeah, so shouts to Jesse Minter. We're all going to overreact to what happens in three weeks. Yep. But <laughs> so, you know, if he gets Don Brown, which I do not expect, but if he gets Don Brown, we're going to overreact to that. But I, I don't think we should let that cloud how tremendous of a job he's done to this point. It's been really impressive. Right. I mean, to this point, at least, it's been better than last year. And I don't just mean that in a statistical sense, but think back to where Michigan was a few weeks out from the uh, from the Ohio State game, where we had just lost to Michigan State in a pretty frustrating defensive game. You know, it wasn't like we got lit up, really, but we had a lot of tempo issues. Kenneth Walker obviously had a huge game, and we, we couldn't really keep him from getting outside and you know creating some plays in a way that was you know, frustrating. And uh, it, that wasn't that long after the Nebraska game, which 
Nebraska had a good defense, or I'm sorry, a good offense last year. So that wasn't a team that you expected to shut down by any means. But also, it was a game the offense really had to, um, you know, to put up some points to win. 32-29 was the final there. It was a, a you know, a, a little bit of a, a back and forth game where. Um, where I don't think you could look back and say, like, oh, that was a shutdown defensive performance. Michigan really hasn't had any games like that this year that I can think of. I mean, any games where it felt like the offense has really had to kind of step up and win the game because the defense has been dominant. It's really funny, though, because we still haven't had to see it. Correct. Right? <laughs> like, we, we talked about this all off season that, like, this is probably going to be the year given what we lost on defense that we're that we need to see the offense put the team on its back and that's Harbaugh was just like nah <laughs> actually we're never gonna do that and that was kind of the story of this game as well to some extent was uh, you know it was uh obviously clunky for a while and then the defense really took it over and it was the the interceptions that obviously kind of you know that's how it went from Michigan tra- Michigan had just taken the lead with the offensive touchdown but then from there it was you know picks on something like three of the next five offensive plays or whatever it was it was pretty (laughs) pretty wild sequence and uh I I think Minter here also gets a lot of credit because the first one was uh Michael Barrett they had uh you know one of their kind of amoeba looks on the front seven where they had six or seven guys lined up right at the line of scrimmage and uh Gavin Wimsat for Rutgers who again you can see some talent there but pretty pretty rough <laughs> really not ready to be a big 10 starting quarterback which he saw on more than a, a handful of occasions in this one but uh he kind of sees that and is looking for a, a comeback route to the outside and he's looking at I, I can't recall if it was dj turner or will johnson playing over the top of the receiver there but he sees the corner dropping deep he doesn't ever look at who's dropping back from the defensive line so he, he's just looking at the corner saying, okay, I got that guy going deep. I'll have the comeback route. He throws the comeback route, and Michael Barrett's sitting right at the spot, you know, dropping right into that route. And, uh, and, and that obviously set up the, uh, the second touchdown of the third quarter. And then right after that, you get the pick six, which that one was a little bit, I don't know, flukier is the right word, where uh, I think Mike Morris got a hand on Wimsett right as he was trying to throw the little crossing route, kind of bumped him, and that caused the throw to be high and hit off the hand of uh, Crookshank and deflect to Barrett and you did see Barrett I think twice like on both interceptions you saw some of that athleticism that he's got like the the former high school option quarterback and guy who's out there you know running fake punts and he just he's he's turned into a pretty good all-around player like he's always had the athleticism but uh now knowing what to do as a linebacker is something I wasn't sure we were ever going to get to this year with what (laughs) where he was at early in the year where you know he he was brought in as like a viper right in the Don Brown defense he was never really an inside linebacker but without Nikai Hill Green we don't know what Hill Green status is but he hasn't played all year and so you've got Junior Colson and then you had one spot that was just kind of a mess early in the year and Barrett has really figured out what he's doing there to the point where he's I think at least functional slash competent if not you know straight up like Big Ten average starter and again I didn't think we were going to get to that point this year but this was obviously a good game not only from the interception standpoint but just I think further evidence that he's kind of solidified that spot even if they don't get Hill Green back um, I think we were talking about he has potentially a sixth year available yeah. and I'd be more than happy to have Barrett come back and and have uh, just have him as an option at that spot if nothing else 
Totally agree. Also, I think he should be allowed to keep the buffs. <laughs> if you get two, like, two turnovers in the same two game. turnovers in the same game and one of them directly results in points, like is, <laughs> uh, is a pick six. Or if you like, you know, I guess a strip sack and you return it or whatever. Like if sure. you get points on your defensive turnover, I think you should get to keep the buffs. So I think Jim has got to reach into Does his Harbaugh pockets, have to, which yeah. <laughs> I assume are lined enough to go over to the Cartier store. Somerset Mall's got a Cartier or whatever. Like, yeah, I think least, Jim can swing that. He's doing all right. Like, actually, I'm not sure if Somerset has a Cartier, but they have like a Saks that I think sells Cartier. Jim Harbaugh can find a Cartier. <laughs> you got to walk your ass in there and buy another pair of buffs. I get it. They're like $1,400 glasses minimum, $3,500 glasses. It's fine. You can afford them. Michael Barrett gets to keep that pair, and you buy a new pair. That's that's my argument. I think that's fair. Like, you get a pick six, you get to keep the buffs. Bang, bang. I've <laughs> Case <ruled>. closed. <laughs> but, no, I mean, I think that's right. Will Johnson also, man, when he, the return he had on his pick, I was like, that is big five-star going to five-star stuff. Like, and that so was, athletic. It was obviously a terrible throw. I mean, he's got Will Johnson sitting over the top. I think that, again, was cover three where Johnson's just kind of bailing deep right into, you know, if you want to throw a fade, I'm going to be sitting there, and it's going to be a jump ball, and I'll take my chances as a six-two five-star against whoever you want to throw to. And I mean, he went up and took that ball away, and then yeah, the return, like kind of similar to Barrett, like whew, you can just see that guy's got that guy's got everything to be a top-tier player. And it's it sounds like Gemin Green is is going to be okay. Like he traveled with the team, and it sounds like was potentially available if needed, but didn't end up playing. But there's a reason that even early in the year, people were saying, like, Will Johnson's probably going to take that spot over by the end of the year. Jamin Green's been so good that he hasn't been able to. But when Will Johnson's out there, other than the one missed tackle on the slant that turned into a big play, I mean, he looked like he looked like he belonged on an elite defense, which, as a guy who's played a handful of games in his career as a true freshman, like, that's, that's a pretty good sign. Anything else on the defense, or should we switch to the other side of the ball? Where I think there is a little more to discuss, frankly. There is. I, I do just want to highlight, I mean, we talked about kind of the defensive line as, as a whole, but again, Mozzie Smith and Chris Jenkins are two of the better run-defending defensive tackles in the country. Uh, I'm really hoping at this point that we get uh, Chris Jenkins back next year. I haven't seen him come up on like a lot of mock drafts or you know projections, uh, th- things like that, but he is... Uh, He's a really, really good player just all around. Not a great pass rusher as a defensive tackle, but does enough there. And as a run defender, just an absolute monster. And then you've got, you know, Mason Graham, Rayshon Benny, those guys rotating in. Michigan's in unbelievably good shape at defensive tackle, given where they were a couple of years ago, where we were like, oh, God, just what are we going to do here? <laughs> and that, that's uh, come a long way. And then at defensive end, Mike Morris had, I, I thought, another really good all-around game. Um, I believe had another sack which puts him up to, I think, six and a half sacks on the year. Like, he very well might get to double digits. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and also Taylor Upshaw. Like, I'm, I've am i been somewhat critical of Taylor Upshaw because he just doesn't – he doesn't really give you anything in pass rush most of the time. And this probably says more about Rutgers' offensive line than it does about him, given that he's a senior and we kind of know what he is. But he had two really impressive pressures, one of which I believe was the play where uh, at one point he kind of – almost pulled Wimsett down, kind of bumped him into Morris, so Morris got his sack. He also drew a holding penalty on a third down that Rutgers converted that made it, like, third and 16, and then they ended up punting. And he had another pressure as well. It might have been the the uh, the pick 
that uh, the, the pick six where he pushed the tackle back and that kind of caused Wimsett to adjust in the pocket and get bumped by Morris from behind. He had several plays where I was like, wow, that's Taylor Upshaw out there doing shit on the pass rush. That's not something you see all that much, but he did it at least three times in this game that, that I caught. So just wanted to call him out as a guy who doesn't doesn't normally get that kind of uh, those kind of accolades. Um, doesn't really get a chance to do a lot of that type of work given the type of player that he is. But in this game, um, yeah, just wanted to give him some credit for that. Love it. Offense now? Offense, let's do it. Where do you want to start? Ugh. I have things to complain about. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I can't help it. I'm a complainer. Do I want to complain first about the goal line? Or do I want to complain first about the wide receivers? So it's interesting. I'm curious what you want to complain about with regards to the goal line. Just like... I'm I'm being a hypocrite. I totally understand this because we talked about this before that like maybe what they should do when they get into the red zone is just run that wedge play over and over and over again. Yep. And that's basically exactly what they did. <laughs> yep. But I still found it really excruciating because it was like Rutgers is very obviously selling out to stop exactly that thing. And I guess if you're going to treat it like four down territory and mm-hmm. you're going to say, okay, we can get two yards on this every time and we're going to do it four times or whatever. I, I can't be super mad about it, but it was really frustrating to be like, okay, we need to go for it on fourth down to get touchdowns against Rutgers. It was annoying. I what? was annoyed by it. Okay. So I think that against Rutgers there is not really a, a fair starting point because I mean, we talked about going into the game that Rutgers is actually like, is actually pretty good on defense, like an above average power five defense. I know, and so we're looking at it and saying, ah, it's Rutgers, like it's 2016 Rutgers and it's not under Greg Schiano. Like this is a defense that's going to make you work for what you get on the ground. And I think Michigan knew that and understood that, but also with the best offensive line in the country and Blake Corum, they basically did what you just said, which is, we have a short yardage play that we think is going to win most of the time. And if we get inside the five yard line and we have four tries, we're going to run it and make you stop us four times. And Rutgers couldn't do it, obviously. They came close, so I'll give them some credit for that. I also don't think that realistically, I, like when Michigan goes to Ohio State, they're not just going to run the wedge four times, I don't think, unless Ohio State can't literally can't stand up to it, which is possible. We'll, <laughs> we'll talk more about that yeah, a little I have later. Some thoughts about them later. I, I do think there are other parts of the offense there. But I also think this was a relatively vanilla game plan, and Michigan wanted to simplify things and say, we're going to test ourselves a little bit. We're going to simplify it a little bit, and we're going to test ourselves a little bit and say, can we just build the whole red zone offense out of the wedge and put it in the end zone? And they did every time. So I I didn't mind that, honestly. I think that was uh, certainly yielded better results than some of what they've tried to do with the more horizontal stuff in the run game over the last, uh, last several weeks. Yeah, I mean, they got in the end zone, which is more than they could say against Michigan State for a good number of those possessions. I just, I listen, we advocated for it, and I was still annoyed (laughs) watching it. That's all I'm saying. I understand that that's fundamentally hypocritical and probably stupid, like it's a little feelings ball-y, but like, I was annoyed by it. It did feel like, it's just one of those things where I can't be satisfied no matter what the outcome of this is, because... I'm like, we run the plays like the ones we ran against Michigan State. And I'm like, don't get cute. Just pound it. (laughs) Correct. Like, why are we getting cute? We don't need to get cute. 
and then we just pound it. And I'm like, why is it so difficult when we're just pounding it? Yeah, put like I know I understand that what I am doing is is being exactly like the prototypical fan who doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about. Just call the plays that work. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. Like, right. I know I get what I'm doing. I fundamentally understand it. That didn't make it any less like it, it still was not fun when I was sitting through it. That's all. Yeah. The wide receivers though are like an actual grievance. Yeah, the wide receivers it's fair to be getting a little bit concerned about. I I uh when as we rewatched the game, I kind of I came out of the game originally thinking I thought JJ had a decent game. You know, had, didn't get a ton of help from his receivers, but I thought played played fine. And then I looked at his numbers after, and he was... They're not good, like 13 of 27 13 of 27 for 151 yards, two touchdowns and no picks. And he also had a couple big uh, a couple big runs where, you know, not, not like huge distance runs, but... Important. Like, right, third down, you know, scrambling out of the pocket, picking up a first down. I thought that was a pretty good game all around. Not one of his best, but... You know, I, I had no issues with him coming out of that game. But 13 of 27 looks pretty bad. And so I was curious on rewatch. I thought, like, did I miss some things? Like, did he just miss more throws than I remember? Or you know, what was kind of the issue here? And what I charted was, so we had the 13 completions, obviously. And then three inaccurate throws, including the one deep ball to Andrell Anthony that was just just off the edge of his, his hands where he couldn't quite bring it so in. So frustrating. It is very weird, too, that for a guy who leads the country in completion percentage and has a great arm and showed even last year the ability to throw the deep ball very accurately, that that's been his one like not quite calibrated thing. It still feels like he'll get there because he has such good touch. And even I'm not sure he will because I don't think we rep it enough for him to get there. He throws like one of those a game. Like it feels like he's never going to get calibrated because on volume, he literally can't. I, I think that is actually part of the issue is that because he doesn't get many looks at it because of the way defenses have been playing Michigan for one thing where they've been playing safeties over the top and saying you're not going to get an open deep guy against us we're not going to get beat that way there's not much there and then also it comes back to the receivers which I I do want to talk about here but yeah I mean when you only get one of those a game or like one every other game over the past four or five six weeks I, I think sometimes when you see it and you don't get it very often it's like oh shit it's there and you get a little bit amped up and you just put, you know, one percent too much on the ball, and I, I do think that I, I think that's something that he'll get fixed because that's more of just uh, like getting getting more comfortable and knowing that okay, I have it. Don't overreact. Just put it out there with the touch that it needs. Be cool. Be cool. Right. Be it's cool. Be, be <laughs> yes, cool. exactly. Chill out. Yeah, I think it'll get there. Like it is getting late this season, and we haven't had many reps at it, so like. I, we're going to find out here over the next few games. Like, is he going to hit some of those? It's an open question, um, and, and a, a fair concern. I'm not saying that I'm not. Uh, you know that it's that one. I think was his fault, but a lot of the others. I just I'm getting to the point with the receivers where I said during the I was like, all right, let's just put Will Johnson out there at receiver. <laughs> like, we're, let's give him the Woodson treatment because, like, well, right. I mean, just going back to what I was saying before. I so he had the three inaccurate throws. He had three throwaways, which I'm kind of charting. He had the one batted ball where the defensive lineman got up in his face and knocked it down on third down. Three, like, throwaways slash batted balls where it wasn't really a throw to a receiver. And then of the other incompletions, the remaining seven were balls that were accurate and were catchable. You know, most of those were semi-contested throws, some more catchable than others. But 
you know, he has the deep ball down the sideline to Amori and Walker that he absolutely dropped into a bucket. You know, that's when you can't put on JJ. That was a perfectly thrown deep ball. And Amori and Walker, just as he's getting half a step, it seems like he doesn't really pick up the ball until very late and he doesn't make a play on it. And it goes right between his hands. And then you had the, uh, there was a Ronnie Bell ball up the sideline that Bell kind of, he, he went up and got it, but he couldn't get a foot down. Um, and there was another one where, uh, you know, Ronnie Bell on a crossing route. This was probably the worst drop, actually, of the game, or it was Bell on a crossing route on uh, on a first down play with Michigan deep in its own territory early in the third quarter. And he hits Bell in stride for probably 20-plus yards, and the corner coming behind, you know, gets his hands around Bell's waist, and the ball just pops out. And then two plays later, because, you know, we don't get the completion there, I think we run for like five yards on second down, it's third and five and we throw a little out pattern to the sideline to Cornelius Johnson, and it's like almost right in his face, and it goes through his hands. And it's like, you gotta you got to help your quarterback out a little bit here. I mean, there are numerous play- – and those are just the drops, but I think to your point, he's not getting any help on the contested catches. He's not getting anything deep. Schoonmaker had the chance in the end zone where he couldn't bring it in. You know, Ronnie Bell had a couple. Like, there's just nobody in this receiving core who is consistently making – you know, the, the jump ball 50-50 catches in the right. way that we are regularly seeing against Michigan's defense. I shouldn't say regularly, but, but like once Keon or twice Coleman a game. But did it, right, and... It happened to DJ Turner against Indiana and, and again against Sean Ryan in this game where sometimes you see a guy just go up and make a play and it's like, that's something that happens in 2021, 2022 football, right, where, you know, passing games are good, receivers are good. You throw a jump ball and the receiver goes and makes a play. There is no but one Michigan on this doesn't, roster right, that's that just is not going happening. to take a defensive back and absolutely moss them. Correct. There just isn't. And like I tweeted that during the game, I said something like, "I wish we had after I think one of those uh, one of those catches by Rutgers receiver." I was like, "We don't have anybody on the roster that can do that." And I had a lot of people in my mentions being like, "We have five. No, we don't. We don't. Well, and a lot of people in your mentions were saying like. We probably do. They just never get the chance. And to me, it's I think that's the opposite of the problem, which is we haven't seen anybody who has proven the ability to do that. And if I'm Michigan as a play caller or even as, as JJ, I mean, we're averaging five and a half, Why six yards a carry for the that right, pass when I can get six yards a carry. Right. If I don't have any reason to believe you can come down. Yeah, with that's it. a very low percentage play. And if I can run low variance, five and a half, six yards a carry, like that's always the better move until I have somebody or, or multiple guys who prove that they can go up and make those contested catches. And on top of that, I think we are ending up with a lot of contested catch situations because outside of Ronnie Bell, I think Ronnie Bell is, is pretty good in this regard and Cornelius Johnson sometimes, but we don't have guys who are elite at getting separation either. So when you have guys who are just okay at getting separation and don't really have the um, kind of high point or, or jump ball skills to go up and win those one-on-one situations, it's ultimately just a, a group of, of guys. I think we were maybe a little bit overly optimistic about what we had there. I don't think it's really a conservatism issue where we just don't want to throw the ball down the field and so we aren't developing our receivers. I think for the most part, the receivers are, are just solid solid big 10 receivers and we kind of get what we can get out of them and we don't really have a true difference maker at least not yet you know we definitely have some talented younger players like andrew anthony could be that guy potentially we haven't really seen it just yet and maybe he needs to get more playing time maybe he needs to get more opportunities to show that amorian walker i assume is showing some of that if he's getting time on the field now in this group this early in his career we heard a lot about darius clemens in the spring like there are guys who could be but on this team right now, that's that's just a, a little bit of a weak spot. 
Totally. It's it's very much a chicken or the egg situation when you're talking about why it is that Michigan isn't making those plays. Are they not throwing them because they don't have any faith in the receivers to come down with them? Or is the reason nobody ever comes down with them because we don't really throw them? And like, it's hard to tell. But from my perspective, I think it is definitely that the like I say definitely as I'm like waffling on the point right now because my I think in this instance it's probably the case that the receivers haven't established that they are going to come down with these balls I haven't seen anybody on this roster moss anyone ever and that is I think an issue but also right like in the past Harbaugh hasn't exactly when he's had these types of receivers on this roster on his roster he hasn't really done that either way. Like Nico Collins was on the roster for a very long time, and that dude was a monster at going up and high pointing a ball. He was like six foot four. He was huge. Sure. And we still didn't really throw as many of them as we wanted. I think that's fundamentally a Harbaugh issue. But also, we weren't running the ball at six yards per carry when Nico Collins was on the team either. So there's a little bit of it where it's like, okay, these circumstances are obviously distinguishable. I also just want to emphasize one more time that like, I think the way that defenses are playing us has been a bigger factor than people are acknowledging in the number of opportunities that guys are getting down the field. I mean, we talked about it with our defense saying, you know, we've made some adjustments and we're saying like against Keon Coleman, right, at Michigan State. We just put a safety over the top, and we took that away. And, and I think he had one completion the rest of the game, or one, one catch the rest of the game after we started playing either Page or Moore, just rotated over the top of him. And we're seeing a lot of that defensively, where teams are, again, we've referenced this a couple times over the past few weeks, teams are just playing two safeties high and saying, if you want to throw a deep ball, you're going to be throwing into double coverage because a safety is going to be sitting there over the top on either side of the field. And when you're doing that, and you're disadvantaging yourself in the box because you've got four or five guys dropping deep, Michigan's perfectly happy to run the ball and take the six yards of carry. I totally get it. I think that's definitely part of it. But I still think the receivers are a little pedestrian. Oh, totally agree. I I was just just calling out that I think the, the way defenses are playing us has been a factor in us not getting as many shots as people would seem to like. But... The fact that they're not, they, they've really shown no capability to win them, to, to win those one-on-one matchups down the field, I, I do think is also a factor. I mean, really the deep ball for most of this year has been Roman Wilson, just Who did roasting guys. Right, he did not play in this game. Sounds like he'll be back next week. But it's really been, can Roman Wilson outrun somebody one-on-one? And a lot of times the answer is yes, and that means he's getting multiple yards of separation. But it's not can Roman Wilson win a, a jump ball against a taller safety? That's not really the type of, of downfield passing game that we've shown any inclination to uh, to run. So, And I think that's what you said around the receivers and inability to win those is is a big factor. It's really, um, it's really not their game. And with Roman Wilson in there, you can see another route to having a downfield passing game. Without him, you see, you see what's missing. Yeah, we had a discussion about this on Friday night. We went out to dinner, um, and Matt asked me if I could put any player in Michigan history <laughs> on this roster. Who would it be? And I had some thoughts, right? Uh, like Hutchins, getting Hutchinson back immediately came to mind. Getting like Devin Bush, like a really good linebacker, because they sure. struggled a little bit. But like, I think we both came to con- the consensus that the answer is a Braylon. Yeah, I mean, that was my pretty, like, to me, that was pretty easily the number one choice for this roster. And, like, I just, 
if you're going to tell me that we have five dudes that can go up and high point a ball like that on our roster, I'm going to tell you to tell you to prove <laughs> it because I don't believe that we do. I think we have a group of pretty good, like average ish big 10 receivers. And the fact that we have that many of them might make us difficult to defend in, in our own right. But like, there is no Marvin Harrison Jr. on this roster. Don't lie to me. No. I mean, like, stop it. Right. This is not the five star factory that Ohio State is. And there's also a reason that Braylon Edwards was the number three overall pick in the draft. And for a lot of our guys, it's, you know, is Ronnie Bell going to come back for a sixth year because he's not really like a prototype NFL receiver? You know, maybe a couple of guys, again, will turn out to be more of a complete package over time. They just haven't gotten there yet. So. I know. Yeah. I just hope we do enough to keep them because, like you said, I think the way that Sam Webb was kind of implying on his show that our receivers might be receiving overtures from other programs, which is a fun little <laughs> wrinkle in the NIL universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just hope we do enough to keep them. Like, because shit, I mean, like, even if we don't actually throw to them that often, the, the fact that it's changing the way that teams play us so much that we can be light in the box and run on people is huge for Michigan. And so, like, it must suck to be that receiver, though, because you're kind of the sacrificial lamb in that situation. Like, you run out there, you don't get to, like, get the catches, make a name for yourself, whatever, but you get to open it up so that Blake Corum can make a name for himself. And I, I imagine that's really frustrating. So... I'm hopeful that that won't actually be a problem. Um, yeah. But it is a little... I, I find the whole thing that is going on with the receiving core, from the way that we game plan it to the way that they actually perform to the idea that people might be poaching them off of our roster, just really worrying and troublesome in general. You're so worried for a team that's 9-0 and, and probably going to be 11-0 going into Ohio State I with the best shot at a national title since... 2006. I can't <laughs> help it. I know. This is who I am. It's going to be okay. Can I explain why it's going to be okay? Sure. <laughs> it's because Blake Corum and this offensive line. I mean, Blake Corum, first of all, was obviously, uh, I shouldn't say obviously, he, he looked ill. I mean, he threw up twice on the sideline early in the game. Yeah, thank you, by the way, for, like, the zoom-in vomit cam. <laughs> yeah, like, thank you, BTN. But Much even during other circumstances, it's possible that they were just kind of taking it light from a workload standpoint because it was Rutgers. But when they were showing Blake Corum on the sideline, he didn't look to be – he looked a little bit off, like somebody who was under the weather. And with the amount of usage Donovan Edwards was getting even early in the game, when it was, you know, competitive and – uh, you know, we obviously needed to be able to continue to move the ball on offense and put it in the end zone. I, I think Blake Corum was not 100%. But that being said, and even with the <laughs> several red zone, uh, several goal line carries that really dragged down his average, he finished at 20 carries for 109 yards, five and a half a carry, two more touchdowns, remains tied for the national lead in touchdowns, is now up to third in the Heisman Trophy odds. It was not a great week for Heisman contenders. I don't know that he's going to have a real chance to win unless he absolutely blows up against Ohio State and Michigan wins that game. But I don't we're, think we can rule out that possibility. We're rooting for him to go full Haskins. <laughs> yeah, again, Corum, it was a little bit more boomer bust given the way Rutgers plays defense, which we talked about going into the game. Just they're going to be aggressive on the interior. They're going to try to blow stuff up, get you behind the sticks. And we did see that a few times. We also saw 
on the first drive, the spectacular touchdown run. They got called back for the uh, illegal formation. Yeah. And then he had to punch it in four times. (laughs) We think that was a byproduct of getting groups of receivers playing together that don't typically play together because of the Roman Wilson absence. Because I think what happened, right, is that Originally, Schoonmaker was on the line, and he came off the line. And then one of the receivers is presumably supposed to shift back onto the line, and no one did, which is what yielded the illegal formation penalty. One of the slot receivers, I think it was Henning and uh, Ronnie Bell, with Henning being the inside guy. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that with Henning presumably playing in that spot because of Roman Wilson being out, Henning probably should have stepped up onto the line of scrimmage and been the extra guy on. And because he didn't, when, like you said, when Schoonmaker shifted off, they ended up with not enough guys in the line of scrimmage. So it didn't impact the play at all. But Coram ended up getting a bunch of yards taken off because of it and uh, and then ended up with a handful of goal line carries at the end of the drive that really dragged his average down. And even all that being said, again, over 100 yards, five and a half yards a carry, uh, a, a really impressive performance with a couple individual runs that just reminded you how good Blake Coram is. Yeah, he's the best. I suspect, I have a sneaking suspicion that a lot of the team was sick. I think that's precisely why we all of a sudden were like, oh shit, we're down seven starters <laughs> this week for when no one had heard anything about them being injured. I suspect that they just, anybody they thought they could do without, they left at home. But Blake Coram, they were like, nah, sorry, buddy, you have to come. <laughs> like, you are you like have to be here. Right, they ended up, we didn't really talk about this off the top, but uh, Ryan Hayes at left tackle did not play. We mentioned Roman Wilson. We mentioned Jemin Green. We mentioned Makari Page. Uh, the one other guy in defense we didn't bring up was Jalen Harrell, who I think a lot of Taylor Upshaw's playing time was in place of, of Harrell, who was also out in this game. So, yeah, a, a lot of guys out. Uh, and we're not sure if Blake Corum uh, was 100% or exactly what his situation was. He really did. <laughs> he didn't look like it physically, but in terms of actual performance, he looked just like the usual Blake Corum, which is to say, you know, legit Heisman contender and probably the best running back in the country. So pretty nice to have that. I also do want to call out, we've kind of glossed over Donovan Edwards a few times this year just because Corum has been so good. But Donovan Edwards, I thought, had maybe his best game. He was very good against Penn State as well. But in this game, I think you saw a little bit of the combination of what makes him so good. Obviously, he had two big catches, including the touchdown, when Michigan took the lead early in the third quarter. He did. He went up and got a ball better than any receiver did, basically. (laughs) Right. Maybe the best contested catch we've seen from a Michigan receiver in the past few weeks. He caught the whole shot, right? That's right. It took, like, the cover two beater. Yep, right up the sideline. That was just before the touchdown, I think a few plays before on a, on a second or third down play. Yeah, he really put the team on his back on that drive. He did. And he also had a couple really nice runs where you're starting to see, even though he's never going to have the like side-to-side agility, and I, I don't think he even has the vision that Quorum has in a way that he can see those things and get to them, he is starting to come into his own, I think, in terms of showing patience in kind of shuffling a little bit behind the line, picking a hole, and then hitting it. And man, when he accelerates, he is so fucking fast. And I think he's a really ideal zone runner because that's really what the zone run game is built for is you've got the line kind of shifting to a side. You've got your your various options of gaps to pick from. And if you can put your foot in the ground when one of those gaps presents itself and be through it into the second level, 
that's an elite zone runner. I think that's what Donovan Edwards is becoming. And you can really see, again, he's, he's never going to be Corum in terms of all of the things that Blake Corum can do. But between that and what he can do as a receiver, I think you're starting to see what, even without Corum, you know, how this running game remains very good, if not elite, next year. Yeah, it's that ability to just kind of hesitate for a little bit because you kind of make the defense commit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you hit the hole. And I think yep. initially Donovan Edwards was just trying to like will himself through the hole without <laughs> waiting. Well, I think a lot of times young guys who are... They're just like, oh, I see it, go. Right, and right? I'm just going to run go. through it as fast as I can and whatever happens when I get there happens. And you don't necessarily have the vision and the understanding of, okay, I can... If I make this guy commit to this side and get on the wrong side of the block, then he's never going to be able to get me once I get through that hole. And he's starting to show some of that and starting to show the ability to uh, to kind of pick out where he's got openings, even on the second level, making some cuts that I don't think we saw from Edwards last year. Not always the right cut. <laughs> Still some learning to do there. But he is starting to, uh, like I said, come into his own. And I think between that and, and what he does in the receiving game, I think he's going to be a really good player next year. It's going to look a little different, but there's a lot to uh, a lot to like about what Donovan Edwards gives you. Yeah, I mean, he was my most hyped player in the preseason. That's I was right. the most excited about him by far, and it's looking like a good good thought by me. Absolutely. And while we're on the run game, should give the uh, the offensive line some props as well. It was another pretty impressive performance. Obviously, the goal line stuff. Eventually, they kind of were uh, you know were able to to uh, implement their their will a little bit. And uh, I, th- I think, again, as we've seen in other games, just over the course of the game, you saw them sort of wear the other team down. And the defense start to break, trying to cheat, trying to be able to get in position on some of those run plays. And eventually it just sort of, the inertia of what Michigan does in its run game is, is too much. And a lot of that is the offensive line. Even though it was pretty banged up in this game, Again, we were playing without Ryan Hayes. Jeffrey Percy came in and got his first career start and was pretty good, I think. I mean, I really didn't notice anything in the way of, you know, no egregious missed blocks. I don't think Trente Jones played either. That's right. Trente Jones still has not played. It sounded like he was available as of last week, but he may be in a situation where he's not quite 100%, and so they want to get him all the way back. And Carson Barnhart's playing well enough that that seems like a perfectly viable option. So, yeah, without either starting tackle... It was, uh, again, another pretty impressive performance. Trevor Keegan at one point also left the game briefly late. Um, haven't heard any update on him. He seemed to be limping around a little bit, but also didn't, you know, he didn't, like, leave the, the field or anything. So yeah, hopefully it's not it's anything severe. It's pretty impressive that we can be that shuffled along the offensive line, be playing, you know, Jeffrey Percy at tackle, like right. whatever, and then feel like, I didn't really notice that it was markedly different or worse. No. And that's really impressive in its own right. Yeah, they go probably seven, maybe eight guys deep now, if we're talking about Percy and, and Gio Elhadi, who's come in a couple times for Keegan when he's gotten banged up this year. So it's a really impressive group. And, you know, we talked earlier about how they are able to impose their will more and more over the course of the game. But it's not just that. It's also that they're so good at identifying what's happening and adjusting and just, like, playing, like, fundamental assignment football uh, and then improvising on top of that when they need to. Seth and I'm blog had a really good piece out today on diagramming one of Donovan Edwards' long runs in this game. And basically Rutgers had uh, had uh, kind of a run blitz set up specifically to defend the edge where they were trying to get to. And you had two or three Michigan guys who ended up doing basically not what was the original design of the play, but adjusting to 
push guys past where they wanted to be or adjusting to a blitzing linebacker and shoving him out of the hole and giving Donovan Edwards a path to cut back behind them straight up field. And it's just like you watch them and you see them do so many impressive physical things. And then on top of that, the mental component as well. This offensive line is, again, we keep saying it like probably the best in the country. And um, just the way that they uh, kind of prove that over and over again every week we should not take that for granted, even though it's been now two years running where we've probably had the best offensive line in the country. That's not something that we, we, as Michigan fans, have seen some pretty bad offensive lines. So appreciate this one, please. I can't remember if I've said this yet on the podcast because, honestly, Matt and I are talking about this continuously and so often (laughs) that, like, stuff I say that's on the mic and stuff I say that's not on the mic, I I can't distinguish between them anymore. But... I'm absolutely sure this is why Pro Football Focus doesn't know how to grade them. I think that they are outsmarting Pro Football Focus. <laughs> I, I genuinely think that's what's happening. When the linemen pull or when they, like you're suggesting, kind of strayed from the original intention of the play call to do something entirely different because they're reacting to what a defense is doing. Right. Like I'm genuine, unless the people at Pro Football Focus are absolute football geniuses, and I've heard some of them speak, so I'm not sure they are. <laughs> like, can figure that out. I think they might be outsmarting the grading system because it doesn't make sense for them to, like, week in, week out, be like a replacement level offensive line, according to Pro Football Focus, when I can see what's going on with my eyes. Right. And know that that's absolutely not true under any circumstances. And that kind of thing I feel like is, like, I think they've just broken their scale a little. That is about the only logical definition or the only logical explanation. I've seen the MGO blog guys mention too that maybe it's just uh, basically an assumption that if you kind of do your job, like you stay mostly engaged with the guy in front of you, that's like a, a net zero. But then that doesn't account for, like you said, all the things that you have to do to adjust during a play and, and you know, blitzing linebackers, being able to pick, pick that up it is not really a very accurate way of assessing how good your run game is overall so there's just so much there that there's no way i'm like dying to know how they grade it because i bet if we got our hands on the like criteria we would be like oh that explains like i think whatever the problem is would probably be staring us in the face if we could like look at what the metric actually is it might be that they apparently outsource the work to bangalore which isn't a great starting point for american football grading yeah it was um the folks at the bucket problem who were talking about that on one of their recent episodes. Very funny, but yeah, I don't know. They're very good. We shouldn't take them for granted. I, I say this every week. I don't have that much more to say about it. Yeah, no, it's uh, looking like it's headed for the, the Joe Moore award again for the second year in a row. So that's fun. I don't talk about special teams at all, man, kind of a low day for Michigan special teams, which is rare. It's like, true. They're usually so good, but Moody misses two 50-yarders. I can't really hold missing two 50-yarders against him very much. It was also clearly pretty windy. You could see the ball like the ball trajectory changing oh, with the wind. I'm going to have a lot to say about the <laughs> wind are. later. I'm sure you are. But it wasn't as windy in Piscataway as it was in Evanston um, for whatever reason. In the Windy City metro area? You're Stop saying? it. <laughs> okay, I have whatever. We'll get there. But, you know, there was obviously at least some wind. I can't be super mad at Moody for missing 250-yarders. He did hit the shorter one later in the game, too. It wasn't like all of a sudden Jake Moody was broken. It was just two long kicks that didn't quite, you know, didn't quite find their way through. And he, you know, picked it up later in the game when he had the shorter attempt. Looked like Money Moody. So, yeah, I'm not concerned about that at all. 
but the blocked punt. I said right after, like, when was the last time Michigan had a punt blocked? It's been a while. I think it's, I'm trying to remember, and I didn't actually look this up, but the first thing that came to mind for me was, I can't remember because honestly, I like blacked out that whole game. And when I tell you which game it was, I think you'll remember why. But I'm pretty sure we had a punt punt blocked in the 2018 Ohio State game. Mm. Like, that game was annoying because at least at one point of it, maybe early in the second half, Michigan might have got the ball first and, like, scored and cut it to, like, some sort of reasonable number, like, where it was like, we were only down nine instead of being down 16 or whatever the hell, and then we immediately got a punt blocked. Like, I'm almost sure that's how it went down. I don't know if I'm hallucinating that <laughs> or if I blacked it out because, honestly, I, that game was so miserable. I, like... I. They serve beer in Ohio Stadium. You can do the math about how that went for me. I don't remember it. I don't want to remember it. Yeah, I'm not the one to answer that question but because I, think I have they PTSD. Got a punt blocked in that's, that game. That's I think the last time. There's a big 404 time. error not found where the memories of that game should be. Yes. So I, I, I can't confirm. I, I think that's right. I don't actually know if that's right. So one of you will tell me if that's right. But <laughs> based on my recollection, my limited recollection of what it was like in Columbus that day, mm-hmm. I think that happened then and i can't remember one since maybe it happened in a game that like wasn't particularly close and so it like it didn't matter and therefore it didn't really register with me but i can't remember one in 19 or 20 or definitely not last year yeah it's been a minute i'm pretty sure so So that was weird to see um and i think uh jake butt did a good job on the broadcast of explaining how michael barrett is basically the personal protector lined up like right in front of the punter so he has to be the guy who takes anybody coming through the interior and I think the way that Rutgers was rushing off the left side, he did not realize that there was somebody kind of stunning behind that coming up the middle. And so he shifted off to the left side to pick somebody up and missed the guy coming up you know, right up the gut into uh, Brad Robbins' face. So that was a little disappointing and really the only thing that kept it a close game for, for a while in the first half. But he made up for it. Yeah, Barrett made up for that, I'd say, in the second half. So no, uh, no hard feelings there. He basically traded those points back. He was <laughs> like, I'm going to get point. them back. I gave up six. I'm going to give back six. Good for you. <laughs> That's right. There was also, on the other side of the ball, Rutgers punter had a fucking day. I mean, he was an adventure. <laughs> yeah, what the fuck? Because Cornelius Johnson's got to be having nightmares about the almost punt blocks he had in this. I think three times he caused him to either, like, kind of at the very last second, drop the ball and, and you know, get a side, like, side foot punt off as Johnson was about to, to take him down or to block it. Uh, or, or the third time, Corsak actually pulled it down, ran back to his left, and punted, like, running to his left with his right foot. Which I don't even know how you do that, honestly. But yeah, it, it was wild. He uh, he's an interesting guy because he. Uh, I mean, <laughs> if you're watching, he makes every punt pretty fascinating, especially for a team like Michigan that can get guys through, and then all of a sudden you think it's going to get blocked, and you don't know what's going to happen from that point. Well, right. And I was having, I'm just like we know a very traumatized Michigan fan, and so every single time, especially at the beginning when the game was tighter than it ended up actually being. I'm sitting there going, we're about to get a fucking roughing on one of these. I know it. Even though I'm like, the guy is out of the tackle box and like, this is stupid. He's a runner. He's like, but I'm like, they're going to throw the flag. They're going to get the rule wrong. The refs are going to get the rule wrong. I have so little faith in them. Yeah, we've seen worse flags than that. That I'm like, oh man, we're about to get absolutely fucked by this. I know. And I'm going to be so mad about it. And then that didn't happen. But it still made it for for an adventure every time that guy lined up to punt. Also, it really was the Big Ten. Like 
it, people were talking a lot about there was a like a absolutely fantastic punt in the Georgia Tennessee game. Like I just saw a bunch of like punt of the year. Yeah, that was like a I don't know seventy three yard punt that went out of bounds at the one and nearly resulted in a safety. Uh, yeah, we'll talk more about the Georgia Tennessee game. That's but, impressive, yeah. but I would argue that the Big Ten has a more impressive punt every week than that punt. <laughs> Like we are what, the conference of punting champions. I that's mean, what Michigan sure. State's punter was doing a couple of weeks ago, like when we played them, when he was just out here, like one handing balls like Odell Beckham <laughs> yep. and then getting them off like miraculously. Like, OK, a 73 yard punt is very impressive. But I feel like on a on a weekly basis, the Big Ten has a punt where you're like, holy fuck. Oh, like easily, sometimes yeah. it's Michigan State's punter. Sometimes it's Iowa's punter. Sometimes it's Rutgers. Sometimes it's Penn State. We yeah. have like five, the five best punters in the no, country. No, fight me, Georgia. Okay, you can Hashtag have everything else. We have punting. Okay, get out of here. That's right. And what you were talking about there with uh, being outside the tackle box, that is actually the rule is that once you are running with the ball outside the tackle box, which is pretty standard for rugby-style punters, once you've cleared the, the tackle or five yards to the side of the the ball where the ball is snapped since sometimes you see weird punt formations where guys are all spread out and there might not be a real quote-unquote tackle that's kind of the way it's defined it's five yards out from the ball in either direction so once Corsak had cleared that he no longer had the protection of being a punter there can't actually be a roughing the punter call in that case because you don't know if he's running or punting and so in Cornelius Johnson's defense it makes sense that you know, if he's got the ball and you're chasing him, you you go after him and try to pull him down. Well, right. I know that. <laughs> I know that. Fortunately, the officials did too. It's, uh, yeah, my, my expectations for them are low in general after the last few weeks. The bar but... is in hell. Like, there's <laughs> well no, just, it's bad. But they got that right. And that was that. They Can did. I slander everybody else now? Let's do it. It's not slander if it's true. <laughs> that should, I want sure. everyone, that should be the number one takeaway from this podcast. It's not slander if it's true. Do we start in Athens? Do we start in... Oh, we should start with Ohio State and Northwestern. In good old Evanston. I want to preface this by saying that before the game started, I had myself like a girl morning. I went to Home Goods. I went to Trader Joe's. I went to the World Market. And I walked there. Like, one and a half miles there... And then all around in that area while I was running my errands and stuff for like many hours at around, I don't know, 11 o'clock. It was like when I was wrapping up that process, you know, about the same time that Ohio State kicked off like 12 miles away. It wasn't that fucking windy. It wasn't that windy. I was actively walking around in it like totally normal. Like, okay, every once in a while you'd get a big gust and it would blow your shopping bag around. But like... They were trying to make it sound like they were throwing the ball in Hurricane Katrina <laughs> to steal one to steal from a Mike Valenti rant. Mike Valenti, but like literally, it yeah, was I mean, not it was that serious. Wind. Like you could see the impact of the ball in the air, but C.J. Stroud fell to pieces in this game. Like this dude is made out of fucking paper mache, because any drop of precipitation or like one degree of of wind that pops up, like. Every one of those makes him incrementally worse as a quarterback in a way that I don't know if I've ever seen for a quarterback who's as like well regarded as CJ Stroud is. I wouldn't call it incrementally worse. I would call it markedly worse. I mean, he's not like listen, their offense we know what it can be, 
But we also know that it is not well situated to play in any... I mean, they can't run the ball. They can't run the ball for shit. They couldn't run the ball on Northwestern. They couldn't run the... This is many weeks in a row now that they have been functionally unable to run the ball. Well, that should be the really concerning takeaway of this game is, like, it may not be precipitating when Michigan plays Ohio State. And maybe C.J. Stroud will be fine. Like, he's usually one of the best quarterbacks in the country. I can't dispute that. But there was nothing about the wind that caused Ohio State to be getting manhandled on the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball. Northwestern outgained them in this game, out first down them in this game. And Ohio Pat State Fitzgerald could, wasn't even trying to win this game. He literally wasn't trying. They didn't play a quarterback for about two-thirds of their snaps on Come offense. On. This was a wildcat offense going up against Ohio State, and especially on the offensive side of the ball, Ohio State could not run it. They got stopped multiple times on third and fourth and short. They had no answer offensively until... In the fourth quarter, they started breaking out the C.J. Stroud runs and saying, you're overplaying inside. We're going to you know, run read option or, or try to get Stroud out of the pocket and get him in open space. That's something that C.J. Stroud has never done before. I'm really happy those are on tape because I feel like they were saving them for us. That is very possible. I'm absolutely sure they did not want to have to pull those out in the middle of a fucking game in Evanston. Against one win Northwestern and a know- defense that... Could, like could barely hold up against Nebraska at the beginning. Of the, I mean, this is not a very good defense. It's not as bad as their offense, but like, God, you should not be getting like out physicaled at the line of scrimmage if you're Ohio State. That is very concerning if you're uh, trying to project that forward to what they're going to do against Michigan or any of the other teams that you know if they were to get into the playoff that they'd be playing against. Yeah, it was rough. The other thing was like this is a functional home game. Like you're Ohio State and you're playing in Evanston, so like two-thirds of the stadium is in Scarlet. And, you know, like the Ohio State players are rallying the crowd the, the <laughs> crowd to get loud when Northwestern is on offense and it's working. And I don't know if that's sadder for Ohio State or for Northwestern <laughs> because it's obviously sad for Northwestern. You're at home and they're getting loud when you're on offense. It's sadder for Ohio State that you needed the crowd to be loud in a game <laughs> against Northwestern. Come on. Yeah, I mean, the takeaway, like I said, the takeaway is that they can't run the ball, but the even broader takeaway is that Ohio State remains soft. Like, this is a team that if you get them into a game that's played at the line of scrimmage and isn't just their receivers being superhuman and beating your guys one-on-one, I don't want to say they fall to pieces, but it's pretty close to that. And Michigan is built exactly to play that game. Somebody on Twitter, I wish I could remember who, but they said, it's very funny that Jim Harbaugh has built a Michigan team that's designed specifically to beat Ohio State while Ryan Day has been building an Ohio State team specifically designed to score 2 million points against Michigan State. And that feels exactly right. Yeah. I mean, results of the game are aside from this. Like, no, even if they beat us, they're soft. (laughs) Correct. I think that's true no matter what. And ultimately, like, I think it is going to prevent them, even if they beat us, fine, beat us. I'm used to it. But, like... Even if they do, it's go- you're one-dimensional. It's yep. going to prevent you from being able to achieve anything on a real stage because what it comes down to is if I don't have to respect the run, it just makes it that much easier for me to cover that army of receivers that you have back there. And I don't have to respect the run because you can't run the fucking football. You literally can't. So, That's right. like, w- whatever happens in three weeks... They're soft. Regardless of what happens, they're soft. I stand by it. 
And we saw exactly in the Georgia-Tennessee game what happens to an offense that is soft, where you don't really have to respect the run, or you can play it straight up with your front seven and stop the run and commit everybody in the secondary to preventing deep balls. I knew that was coming. I'm not a believer in Tennessee. Well, that's a little bit of an overstatement. My thing is, I have like a general philosophy. This is all feelings oriented. It's This is not quantitative at all. But... I'm skeptical of teams who just like pop up onto the scene in the way that Tennessee has this year. I mean, last year they played in a bowl game against Purdue, okay? Like this is not, it's not like they've been performing at a very high level for four or five years and are trying to break through onto the plane of Alabama and Georgia. Like, no, they just showed up to the party. I'm generally skeptical of a team in that position knocking off multiple really, really high-level teams in one year. They did it to Bama, and I was like, they're not going to do it to Georgia. Like, I just don't think you can pull two of those games off in one year. Number one, I think a lot of those games get won because of the element of surprise. It's like a little bit of like, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to say Nick Saban didn't take Tennessee seriously. Nick Saban appeared. I, I bet Nick Saban takes breakfast seriously. Nick Saban takes everything, everything seriously. Seriously. But there is kind of an element of like, oh, I'm not necessarily expecting this from them. And then they kind of punch you in the mouth. That's different when than when you, you're number one and you've got the target fully on your back, right? I think it might also be that, I mean, it's not like Tennessee's offense is a surprise exactly, but it is really tough to play against. And I think Alabama, to some extent, got the, uh, got the downside of playing that offense first this year as it was kind of like fully hitting its stride. When I say first, I didn't like not the season opener, but that was really the first big game for Tennessee because they'd been kind of building momentum and getting more comfortable between Hen and Hooker and their receivers and figuring things out. It seemed like they were hitting their peak at the right time. And Alabama had not really seen another, you know, they hadn't seen Tennessee do everything that they'd been doing against another top tier defense. Whereas Georgia got the benefit of seeing what happened against Alabama and being able to kind of adjust accordingly. Georgia's front seven is also, like I said earlier, probably right up there with Michigan, except more talented, frankly, because it's the five-star factory. And so they can play everything straight up and say, you know, we're going to basically just leave our our in-the-box defenders to handle your run game and to rush the passer. And they're all better than your guys. So they can win one-on-one across the board. And we don't have to do anything fancy there with trying to bring pressure, bring extra guys, or leaving holes in coverage. So they could play that very straight up in a way that I don't think even Alabama can with just Will Anderson. So that's a little bit of an advantage I think that Georgia had. Um, but it was, I mean, it was pretty impressive from Georgia. I got to say they really on both sides of the ball. Like Tennessee's defense isn't particularly good, and so early in the game when they didn't finish a couple drives that they had where they had chances to hang in, and all of a sudden it's you know, fourteen to three or whatever it was, Georgia. You could feel pretty quickly that, like, oh, this this might not go well at all for Tennessee because they can't stop Georgia consistently. And once you start falling behind and Georgia then is able to start getting, like, exotic with blitzes if they want to, knowing that you only have really one route to come back, that that gets scary, I'm sure, for a quarterback, and it didn't go very well for Hennon Hooker. And then the rain came in, too, so that, that didn't help either, I'm sure. But, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty decisive. I mean, that game was over pretty quickly left us with the room to watch Illinois and Michigan State. <laughs> Oof. Yeah, and boy, that was a, a transition in offense. I'm going to give myself another pat on the back for that one because 
I have been saying for the longest time that I don't think Illinois can possibly be that good or that their defense can possibly be that good and that Bill Connolly is literally mathematically incapable of adjusting for the horror (laughs) of Big Ten West offense. And lo and behold, the minute Illinois was faced with the top 50 SP plus offense, literally top 50, like not even actually good, just like not horrendous offense, they lose. Michigan State goes in, they get they get the win. Uh, Illinois gets goal line standed. Yep. Classic Michigan State fashion. As Michigan State does. But I just I don't we don't have to talk about that game because I don't know Michigan State's in the rear view. <laughs> I guess Illinois still is forthcoming. But well, yeah, I think we learned some things about Illinois in that game. And to be fair, it wasn't like Michigan State's offense didn't exactly uh, dominate that game. They put up 294 total yards and 17 first downs and route to 23 points, but. Illinois' offense looked pretty rough against the Michigan State defense that Michigan mostly had its way with just a little over a week ago. And Illinois did finish with uh, 441 yards, but their problem was that it took them 47 carries to get to 150 rushing yards, and that's pretty much the core of the offense is Chase Brown and kind of pounding it. And when you're averaging three and a third yards a carry, you're uh, you know you're not going to be super efficient. So that was kind of the big problem for Illinois. Um, you just kind of saw a lot of the the things that we thought might be issues for them where it's not a terrible offense and they can move the ball enough to put up, you know, 20 plus points and it's a decent enough run defense that they can kind of hold you in check and you have to rely on Tommy DeVito who's okay, but not going to move the needle for anybody really. So it was just a lot of the things that I think if you were wondering about like how real is Illinois, you kind of got some answers here and the answer was not very. <laughs> yeah. And we'll preview Illinois more thoroughly before we see them in you know, just over a week. We will. I'm not going to stop congratulating myself on this podcast because how fucking right was I about Clemson? Oh, Clemson was a fraud the whole time. I mean, we, we've been talking for weeks about how this felt a lot like the 2014 Florida State team, the year after they won the Natty, where that whole team was basically Jameis and nothing, and somehow they went undefeated playing in an absolute garbage ACC that year. But it was very clear the whole year that they were not very good. And there was just nobody on the schedule that was actually able to establish that. Notre Dame definitely took care of that for us against Clemson. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they're not good. And I wondered what on earth the Kajua Playoff Committee was watching. I don't think they watched. No, we still don't have an answer on that. I don't think they watched. But they got absolutely waxed by Notre Dame. They couldn't fucking move the ball for shit. They couldn't score points for shit. They pulled their quarterback. Everything about it was bad. We yeah, were their like, offense. Yeah, we fucking <laughs> right. knew, buddy. Their offense remains an absolute dumpster fire. I mean, they were shut out into the fourth quarter. At one point in the, uh, I believe it was in the third quarter, when they were down 14 nothing, they pulled Uangalale again. Same thing they had to do a couple weeks ago to come back late against Syracuse and win that game. And... They put in Klubnik, the five-star freshman, and his first pass, he throws a terrible interception at, like, Clemson's 12-yard line that Notre Dame punches in to go up 21-0. They also had, I think, a block punt early in the game. It's not like Notre Dame's offense was doing a lot, but Clemson's offense did so little that at no point was the game actually competitive. I think they ran something like three plays in Notre Dame territory until the fourth quarter. I mean, this was just an atrocious performance that was very indicative of all of the problems that people have talked about with Clemson's offense for the last two years. And it really, really came to a head in this game against a Notre Dame team that's fine, but should you be getting run off the field by a team that lost to Stanford and Marshall this year? No, not if you're an actual college football playoff contender, which I think we can uh, pretty safely say at this point Clemson is no longer. 
Yep, right about that too. And Bama no longer? As Oof. far as its playoff hopes, I, I'm not quite ready to totally bury Bama. I think they would need an absolute ton of help. Basically, I think what they would need to do is knock off like an undefeated Georgia in an SEC title game. Or like a one-loss Georgia, maybe, in an SEC title game. And then give them two. And it would have to be... I mean, Bama's real problem is that they're probably not going to make the SEC title game. Because they have one more conference loss than LSU. Right. One of their losses was to Florida State in the opener. And LSU has the tiebreaker. LSU will have to implode down the stretch for Bama to even get in the SEC title game and have a chance to knock off Yeah, they need help. They need LSU to lose one somewhere along the way. No, they need LSU to lose two. Oh, yeah, you're right. Nah, they're doomed. I don't know. I, yeah. it, it's really hard to see the path for Bama. Yeah, I think Bama's actually done just because LSU is ahead of them. And on, on top of that, frankly, I don't think LSU or Bama is going to hang with Georgia this year. I just think both of those teams have some weakness. LSU, i got to give them credit. They have really put it together. And Jaden Daniels has turned into an actually very good quarterback. Like, he probably outplayed Bryce Young in this game. Bryce Young was still good, but... Man, Alabama, it's surprising to me. They just, defensively, they've got a few issues that we saw against Tennessee, and offensively, their offensive line still isn't very good, which was the same issue as last year. And this year, they don't have a receiver. Like, they have receivers, but their receivers are kind of similar to Michigan's in the sense that they just, they don't have a single guy out there who's a difference maker. Bryce Young is trying to do everything on his own, and for the most part... Jamison Williams is gone. Oh, God, Jamison Williams was so good. Uh, I mean... God, over the last however many years, they've had, like, almost every year, they've had two-plus elite receivers. And right now, they just don't have a guy. And so, you can count on Bryce Young to do a lot, and he does a lot, but he can only carry that offense so far. And you've seen it hit its limits in a few games this year against Texas, against Texas A&M, against LSU. Like, it, it just keeps popping up, and at some point, you have to acknowledge that while Bama is still kind of Bama and still very good, this is not the team that we thought it was going to be going into the year as like the national title front runner. I, I like you said, I don't think they're getting in the playoff. The path is nearly impossible for them, and with so many teams in front of them, they've uh, yeah. I, I think they're going to end up sitting out the playoff for only the second time ever. Is that right? I think the only other time was when we got them. That's right. That game was annoying. That yeah, was annoying. Well, I guess we can follow that up by saying as we record this. The College Football Playoff Committee has put out its new and updated rankings. And look, Clemson's gone. At least they're not in the top four anymore. We've got Georgia 1, Ohio State 2, Michigan 3, TCU 4. No qualms with that. I'm actually a little surprised. I'd seen some speculation that with Tennessee being number one and with the the general deference that is provided to the SEC at all times, that Tennessee might even stay ahead of Michigan at number three. I didn't no think that was going way. to happen. They have four undefeated teams and four playoff spots. They're not that smart, and they're just going to put their four undefeated teams in their four playoff spots. But, I mean, that wasn't the case last week with TCU, right? Alabama was still ahead of TCU, even though Bama had a loss last week. Bama is Bama. Sure. Like, I, I just, this to me feels like a no-brainer. I mean... Yes, to some extent, I think that's true. But I am a little bit surprised, actually, that Tennessee dropped out of the top four. I thought they would still be ahead of TCU, given the kind of, like what I just said about the SEC, TCU's gotten the exact opposite of that from what we saw thus far from the play. Like, the committee did not seem impressed with what TCU has done thus far. Like, whether you agree with that or not, that was just the impression I got from the the first rankings. 
so seeing Tennessee behind them at number five this week is a little bit surprising to me, but also encouraging because I think with the order it's in right now, Georgia, Ohio State, Michigan, TCU, and then the one-loss teams, and with Tennessee's big win, Bama now being significantly devalued from where it looked, you know, where it was a couple weeks ago, I do think there is a path to the loser of Ohio State, Michigan, getting into the playoff at number four. I still think we need a little help. From who? Who do you think? I just, I think if we're in a situation where Georgia runs the table, mm-hmm. they beat LSU yep. in an SEC title game. LSU, three losses. They're definitely on the outside looking in. They're not getting in with that. Right. But Tennessee also runs the table the rest of the way. I think I think that an 11-1 and Tennessee might still get in ahead over an 11-1 and Michigan with a loss in Columbus. I think that's possible. They'd have very similar, I guess, overall resumes at that point. The question would be, is Michigan more competitive against Ohio? Like, if Michigan loses that game in Columbus, is it a you know 33-30 type of game that comes down to the last minute? Because Tennessee at Georgia was not that. That was not a competitive game after the first like seven minutes. And so I think if you're looking at those two teams and saying we're kind of splitting hairs here because both have a loss to like the number one or number two team in Georgia and Ohio State, and then both have a win over like Michigan would have a win over Penn State, who if they finish ten and two, which it kind of looks like they will they would be right in the same ranking vicinity as, as a two-loss Bama. You'd have really similar resumes. I also and it would think basically we probably need Oregon to go down. because I think I, the Pac-12 champ is the, the biggest threat there, actually. A Pac-12 champ at 12-1, and one, I think, is going to get in over a non-Big Ten champion at 11-1. and one. I think both of those teams are still a threat right now. I don't really think Clemson's a threat, even though no. they only have one loss. Number one, they got fucking embarrassed. And number two, the rest of their schedule's ass. Right. They're just clearly not a very good team. And you can't you can't 2014 Florida State it without going undefeated. Yeah. That, you have to do that. You can't lose by three touchdowns to a mediocre Notre Dame team. That's just not... Correct. I, I don't think that's But I still think Tennessee and Oregon stand in our way. That's that's the position that I'm, I'm taking here. Tennessee might... But I would say I think if Michigan loses close in Columbus, closer than Tennessee lost in Athens, I think Michigan probably wins that coin flip. The Pac-12 champ is the the tougher one, and also the more interesting one, honestly, because it's bullshit. Though you got waxed by Georgia, well, you that's don't the real question. On is, the same field with them, right? Georgia, assuming Georgia finishes number one, if that scenario that you just laid out actually comes to fruition, if Oregon gets in, unless TCU loses, and you can shuffle things around, like if the top three hold and Michigan loses to Ohio State and you're talking about who gets in at number four, does anybody want to see an Oregon-Georgia rematch of a game that Georgia no. already won this year by 46 points? No. No. So that would be, I think, maybe one of the most interesting decisions the committee has had during the entirety of the playoffs' existence is probably your most deserving team, based on resume, conference championship, whatever you want to call it. It like In that scenario, might be Oregon. But, man, I don't know if you recreate that matchup. Maybe you do, and you just say, week one was a long time ago, and we want to kind of see what it looks like now again, but oof, that would be, <laughs> I think, an unpopular decision. So it, it would be really interesting if it comes down to like Michigan, Tennessee, and a, a one-loss Pac-12 champion. The Pac-12 champion could make that job a lot easier if it's, say, USC beats UCLA and then beats Oregon, and you've got a, a 12-1 and USC with a conference title and wins over two top 15 teams. 
maybe that decision is easier because you don't have the Georgia-Oregon dynamic impacting it. Yeah, I'm just thinking about Georgia-Oregon still, and the thing that's making me laugh is that for all of the scheduling hand-wringing, mm-hmm. right, it would be deeply funny because there are tons of people that are like, Michigan's got to schedule better and everybody's got to schedule better. You want to get into the playoff, you schedule better. Don't play cupcakes, blah, blah, blah. It would be deeply funny. I don't think they'll say this for this reason, but it would be deeply funny if the playoff committee was like, yeah, but we already saw Oregon play Georgia and they don't belong on the same field as Georgia. And that's why they don't get in because then it's like, oh, you really galaxy brained yourself by scheduling that. You, you didn't have to. And now you're out because of it. And that would be funny. I don't think they will say that because I don't think the committee wants to take away the incentive to schedule better games. But it would be deeply funny if that was the reason Oregon got left out. If we were like, we saw you against elite competition and we don't think you're on par with them. And that, to me, is a big neon light that says don't schedule elite competition if you don't have to. I mean, right? if that decision comes up, they're going to have to address that. And they're going to have to either say that or say something along the lines of Michigan was just a clearly better team, so we went with Michigan ahead of Oregon, which is basically the same thing, just in couch language, right? Yeah, deeply funny. I like that. That that would be pretty funny, honestly. Yeah, sign me up for funny. I like that. (laughs) Yeah, so I guess that's where we're at. It's uh, it, it looks a lot better than it did a week ago for Michigan. I mean, I think we said you know, sitting here seven or eight days ago. We got a lot of the help we needed with Notre Dame taking down Clemson and LSU taking down Bama. That was, they they paved some roadblocks for us right there. Yeah, that that takes out two of the large obstacles, I think. And and Tennessee getting really run off the field by Georgia. I mean, I wouldn't say that Tennessee was uncompetitive in that game, but they certainly didn't look like a team that if you matched them back up, you would expect Tennessee to... uh, to do a whole lot better. I guess I'll put it that way. Right. It feels like if you play that game 10 times, Georgia still wins like eight of them. I think that's right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, it was uh, It was not a great performance for Tennessee. And seeing that, like I said, I think that kind of gives Michigan an inside track where even if they lose in Columbus, if they lose in much more competitive fashion than Tennessee just did, to me, that's edge Michigan. And then TCU also still goes to uh, to Texas this week, and Texas is I think a six or seven point underdog, or uh, sorry, Texas is a six or seven point favorite last I saw. So if TCU goes down, then you're already looking at a one loss team getting in, one way or another, right? Right. There are only it's three going to be teams Tennessee left. or or the Pac-12 champion or whoever will will get in by default because there's only three well, undefeated teams left. Teams are going to get in. Oh sure, right. Because I, I meant- Michigan and Ohio State are one's gonna. Correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I was kind of excluding that and saying you've got three remaining undefeateds and then a one loss team will be number four no matter what. So if you're already at that stage where and a one loss team will probably be number three no matter what. We'll end up number three. You mean? Yeah. Right. Yes. Eventually. Like yeah. when, when, when the dust settles in December. Correct. Right. Yeah. So if that's, you know, whether that's Tennessee or Oregon or whoever, like Michigan does have, I think, a, a path to getting in even with a loss to Ohio State. Hopefully that won't matter because the soft-ass team I saw in Evanston, Michigan can beat that team. Like, if they play like they did in the first half against Rutgers and in Indiana, like, yeah, Michigan can also lose that game. That's I'm not I'm not going to sit here and say Michigan's going to win. No, because... if the version of Michigan that showed up for, like, the Penn State game plays, that's going to be a very interesting game. Or last year's Ohio State game. I mean, yeah. from what I've seen of Ohio State, I, I do think their run defense is better. It's not the mess it was last year. It's decent to good. But Michigan has an elite run game. And I still think from what I've seen from Michigan's defensive line and Michigan's offensive line and what I've seen of Ohio State on those sides of the ball, I don't know. That that just looks big advantage Michigan to me. And it's going to depend a lot on how good is C.J. Stroud that day, how good is J.J. McCarthy that day, because otherwise Michigan's got advantages. They've built their team to match up against that 
soft ass. <laughs> You're talking too big a game for my nerves. Oh, come on. You were doing it all Saturday. I know. The bitch baby program, I believe, was the, uh, the terminology that Listen. was used there. Listen, also, I don't, I don't like that shit on the internet for posterity. <laughs> if you want to make fun of me when it, when it goes awry, but... That but I mean, we I talked saying. about it last year, right? That this Michigan team looks like the team that if you were to design a team and say, how do you beat Ohio State? Michigan built itself to that profile. And they've done it again because this is the same Ohio State team, basically, with a slightly upgraded run defense and probably a slightly worse run offense. It seems to be getting, I think it's backsliding from what I've seen this year. So I don't really see any reason to think that the overall performances are going to be different. That doesn't mean the outcomes won't be different that Ohio State can't win on any given day in that game but man I, I from what I've seen that game to me looks like pretty much a toss-up right now I'll, I'll take my chances in Columbus that day also one other thing I had people in my mentions on Twitter Ohio State fans after I made a comment about Ryan Day building a paper mache ass program in the upper Midwest arguing with me that Ohio is not in the upper Midwest I've lived in Ohio twice and Michigan on three separate occasions and also Iowa, Missouri, Arizona. Like, I've lived all over the place. Ohio and Michigan are pretty much the same place from a weather standpoint. Yeah, I mean, okay, even if it's not the upper Midwest, number one, what would you just, the Midwest generally? Right, the like, northern not, part of the Midwest. Are we, like, really right. splitting semantics there? But also, <laughs> like, like, that's a distinction without a difference. The weather's the fucking same. It's the same. Well, and also, also, even if Columbus is, like you said, if Columbus is the Midwest or whatever, my point is you play in the Big Ten. You have to go to Evanston. You have to go to Ann Arbor. You, you have, have to, to go, go to, to Evanston. <laughs> like that is the scariest place to ever play football. Oh, no, it's the least intimidating stadium I've ever seen in my life. It's a high school stadium. But you have to play in those conditions is my point, right? You have to play in Chicago weather, in Michigan weather, in central Illinois weather, wherever the fuck Champaign is. I, don't, I live in Illinois, and I don't even know where Champaign is. Yikes. But my it's point is you play stuff. outside all the time in the upper Midwest or some variation of that. Like, you can't be a program that just is, like, Lincoln Riley's Oklahoma and doesn't ever want to run the ball. Because eventually you're going to get a game like that Northwestern one, and you're going to get it in Ann Arbor, and you're going to get your ass kicked. I think that happened We've seen that game, yeah. Yeah, I think I've seen that game. That one sounds familiar to me. But Ryan Day doesn't care about that. He's built a team that he's built, and Michigan's built a team that it's built. We're about to show up in Columbus. They're going to have a dome on that bitch. <laughs> They're, like, furiously. Like, We've relocated all home games to Indianapolis. No, seriously. Like, we're about to. We're, we're going to show up, and, like, secretly there's, like, a massive construction project taking place in the dead of night in Columbus to put a dome on that bitch because, like, they need it. They yep. can only play if it's, like, perfect weather and enclosed and not a lick of wind and you know whatever right. whatever they build a team that's for domes for them, okay? and playoff games that's not and for me to be fair like if you're going to win a national title that may be the best way to do it but to win a national title right now you also have to get past michigan and michigan's built its team a much different way and that's going to be pretty fun on november 26th is that the right date 26th that is right you're too confident for my taste. I'm not that... Like, if you ask me right now, would I say Ohio State still wins? Like, gun to my head, sure. I, I, Ohio State, probably 51-49. But 51-49 going to Columbus feels pretty good based on where Michigan's been at for you most of the last 15 years. You are not nearly traumatized enough for my liking, I'm telling you. Are we going to talk... Do we have time? How long have we been doing this? Are we going to talk about Nebraska? Yeah, sure. Let's talk about Nebraska. That's a team that we do play. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't know that they are deserving of an entire preview episode because they're not good. I mean, this is a team that from the very beginning of the season has been giving up <laughs> some astronomical percentage of their available yards, right? Like yeah, 80% of terrible. their available yards, they're just like out here giving up. I think we almost know for certain that they will be without Casey Thompson to start this game. Yeah, I haven't seen an update on him since the weekend, but he didn't play Saturday. No, uh, I saw I saw an update on him today. Okay. Yeah, I found a tweet earlier today from Amy Just, who appears to cover Nebraska for the Lincoln Journal Star, and she gave a quote um, from Nebraska's coaching staff that says, if Casey Thompson doesn't practice tomorrow, he'll be ruled out for Saturday versus Michigan. And then the quote goes on to say, looking at him today, I'd probably rule Casey out. So that doesn't seem particularly promising for Casey Thompson to be able to play. No, so not so much. I think we will not be seeing him. Yeah, they went with uh, Chubba Purdy, Brock Purdy's little brother, this last Saturday against Minnesota. And he went 6 for 16 for 41 yards and an interception. Then they pulled him for, uh, I guess, what would be the third stringer, Logan Smothers, and he was 5 for 10 for 80 yards. That's like a teen drama name. <laughs> Logan Smothers? Yeah. Like, yeah, that's definitely a real name. And not like a good one. Like, <laughs> th- like it's giving Zoe 101. Like, it's like not... <laughs> I you're going to go with like Riverdale the, or something? I think one <laughs> of the characters on that was named Logan, maybe. I okay. don't know. It's giving, it's giving like middle school mm-hmm. to like early high school tv drama show that's not he can't he can't beat us logan smothers can't beat us and that's all the analysis i have for this (laughs) game thank you well said they do have a a pretty good running back in anthony grant he was a a juco commit i think one of the top juco running backs in the country this last year and he's been uh he's been very good this year and that's kind of the the core of the offense i guess especially with thompson out since he's a little bit more of a passing threat than they had last year with adrian martinez yeah but ultimately, that defense is mid, that offense is mid. Yeah, I was a little bit surprised to see. I was just pulling up SP+, and I see that Nebraska's defense is ranked 69th. Um, actually, honestly, a little bit higher than I thought, with as nice. bad as it's been for most of the year. <laughs> Hashtag nice. That being said, their offense is 63rd, so only marginally better, and that's with Casey Thompson healthy for most of the year and with a pretty decent running game. So that just kind of speaks to the overall state of the program. They are 71st overall, uh, just slightly ahead of, of Rutgers, actually. They're about four points better in SP Plus than Rutgers. And uh, that seems to be borne out in the um, in the early lines for this game because Michigan is favored by 29 at home against Nebraska after being a 25.5-point favorite last week against Rutgers. So, in other words, we're basically playing Rutgers just a little bit more evenly bad as opposed to Rutgers, which is god-awful on defense. and God-awful on offense. Or Sorry, god-awful on offense and, like, slightly above average on defense. Here's the question. Do you have any thoughts about how Nebraska will play us defensively? Which is to say... I honestly don't think it matters. Every team that's gone up against them has... Well, I shouldn't say every team that's gone up against them has run the ball at will. That was true earlier in the year. Recently, I think they have put it together a little bit in that regard. Uh, Minnesota actually only averaged 2.8 yards a carry. I think they tried to play it pretty conservatively, given that Tanner Morgan missed most of that game with an injury, and they just kind of tried to pound it. That may be what we see Michigan try to do, frankly, given the kind of state of these programs and what Michigan's been able to do to everybody else, including some much better front sevens than Nebraska's. I wouldn't be surprised. And that's kind of why I say I'm not sure it matters, just because I think Michigan will 
more or less decide what it wants to do and will probably impose that <laughs> against this Nebraska defense. Yeah, I just asked because it's been one of the, I think, more interesting questions that we have had to contend with this year is people keep throwing kind of different stuff at us, but you know, a lot of teams have replicated each other by playing like light in the box and trying to take right. away the big play. Playing differently, but with the same general theme of we don't want to get beat deep and we'll let you grind us and try to hold up in the red zone. Yeah, just curious as to whether you think like which way Nebraska will go. Maybe it just doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> They're just not good and it doesn't really matter what I do think do. they'll be a little bit more aggressive, more like what Rutgers was given the way that they have played recently and that Mickey Joseph is, I think, genuinely vying to hold on to that coaching job going into next year. I don't really think he will. But I do think Nebraska will kind of game plan for this in an attempt to uh, you know, make this kind of a game that Mickey Joseph can hold up as saying, like, hey, look, we're, we're getting better. We can hang with a team like Michigan. But I also don't really think it will matter. I just think with what we've seen from their front seven – and with what we've seen from Michigan's offensive line, they can play it pretty vanilla. I expect it'll be a pretty light day for JJ in terms of carries. Um, I, I do hope they'll break out a little bit more in the way of play action and give him a chance to take a few shots and see if they can get that recalibrated, pending weather. Like if it's, it sounds like it's getting a lot colder this week than it's been the last couple of weeks. And yeah, we got to break out the <laughs> rechargeable hand warmers I bought you last season. That's right. God, those are game savers, by the way. Yeah. It's going to be cold, but I don't think uh, maybe a little wind, but nothing like what we saw over last weekend's games. So. Yeah, if it's like cold rain, wind, shit, I, I don't think they'll even bother with too much messing around because this is a team that you can play, like, just keep it simple. Like, play low variance and grind them out if you have to. But I think all of us would like to see a little bit more in the way of, um, you know, trying to hit a few of those downfield shots, get that calibrated a little bit going into the last couple of weeks when against Illinois, you might actually need that. Against Ohio State, you're almost definitely going to need that. So that, that would be my hope. Whether that actually happens remains to be seen, given that, like I said, I think they'll probably keep it relatively vanilla and try to just grind this one out and move on to the uh, the slightly more daunting opponents in the last two weeks. Yeah, I don't have anything else to say about Nebraska. I've watched, like, I don't know, nine minutes in a Nebraska game this year, so that's all I got. That's nine minutes more than them, you probably should have from I watched a them when they played Northwestern in <laughs> week zero, right? That's about all you need to know. So, and since then, I haven't bothered. They fired Scott Frost. I laughed at them. I've moved on with my life. <laughs> Just for a little more context, their Big Ten wins this year are 35-21 over Indiana at home. That was uh, about a month ago. And then the next week, they won at Rutgers 14-13 to in a game we talked a little bit about last week that was truly disgusting. That was the game that got Rutgers' offensive coordinator fired. That's so. right. And That's rightly right. so, that defense is bad, and you should be able to move the ball on it. So Yeah, and that I think pretty well sums it up, is they're slightly better than Indiana, or about on par with Indiana, and uh, also about on par with Rutgers, which we've seen Michigan play those teams, and other than some very weird first-half occurrences, those games were frankly not competitive. Uh, this one's also at home, which provides a little bit further benefit, so a 29-point line feels uh, about right. I think that's it. I don't know if we have more to say. I don't have more to say. That's already too much time dedicated to Nebraska. So if you're still here, thank you for listening, and we will see you back next week.